Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Fall has finally arrived. I want to say hi to everyone watching up in Port Perry in the high school and everyone else watching online. Glad you're here. And welcome to our new series, The Sent Ones. I want to begin this series this morning all the way back in February of last year. As leaders, uh, we went before Jesus and we asked him a question. What do you want us to hear? What do you want to do among us? What is the direction that you have for this local church out of the many that you own and lead? And as I shared over a month ago now, there was one word that emerged from those times of prayer and those times of listening. And the word was obedience. Now the word was not given to us in a harsh way. It wasn't given as rebuke or condemnation. It was given as invitation. There was this grand growing sense that for this year, in this season, God was calling us to a growing inward obedience. An an obedience that actually in our culture is being rejected as everyone is going in any other direction but this. There was an invitation basically for holiness among us, which always leads to freedom. Yet as we heard that word obedience, it was not just some call for inward transformation alone. It was also an invitation to go forward, to go where Jesus was going to ask us to go as a whole family. So there's this deepening inward obedience and a willing obedience to walk forward with him. And that is why we chose for this year the theme of pilgrims and pioneers. And I'd like to start this morning by reading the evocative and the revolutionary and the invitational language we used around this theme in our last series of videos. We wrote this, we are pilgrims on a journey, a holy journey seeking the kingdom. We are pioneers taking new ground given to us under the authority of Jesus, a representation of the kingdom, changing culture, living differently, exposing darkness, radiating light. We will not settle for what is common or just good. Our standard is righteousness. Our standard as Christians is love. Our standard is purity. Our standard is holiness. Our standard is consecration. And our standard is obedience. So here's the question. How do we do that, what I just read, as we all live in this amazing city called the GTA? How in the world do we make our standards consecration and obedience and love in a city of 6 million people, the most multicultural city on earth, 150 to 300 heart languages spoken every day, sexually diverse in every single direction, every religion on earth is found in Toronto, Muslim, Hindu, Baha'i, Sikh, Witch, Buddhist, Jews, the list goes on and on. And among all of that, spirituality mixes with agnosticism, which mixes with atheism, and it is pervasive. Our city is amazing. Our city is creative and artistic and modern and postmodern. It is the engine of the economy for our country, banking and baking and fashion and trade. It is fast-paced. It is intense. It is vibrant. It is beautiful. It is global. And here's the question this morning. How do we as followers of Jesus live as followers of Jesus in a city like this? How do we not just say, oh, we're pilgrims and pioneer? Actually, how do followers of Jesus truly pioneer and truly pilgrim in the city that we love called Toronto with all the good and all the bad, with all the blessings and actually the very serious temptations? How do we be part of Toronto but not fully of Toronto? How do we be a blessing but still stand for truth while being grace-filled? 
Now, if there is one book that shows us how to do this very practically, it is actually a book that we have never fully taught in this church, and it's the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible this morning, virtually or physically, I'd love you to turn to that New Testament book. There are so many similarities between our great city of Toronto and actually the ancient city of Corinth. And if you read 1 Corinthians from cover to cover, it reads like a book written for Christians living in any large urban center in the West today. Corinth also was known as a city of culture, of art, of business, of trade, of pragmatism. Uh, Pursuit of success is actually what it was most famous for. As one wrote about Corinth using modern ideas, he said, you know, people in Corinth were all about massaging superior egos and rubbing shoulders with the powerful and pulling strings and scratching each other's backs when it worked out and dragging rivals through the mud. They all describe what was required to, to attain success in Corinth. Sound familiar? The city was also known as a secondary powerful trading city, so people from all over the ancient Roman world would actually show up and do trade there and live there. The comparison for us this morning is it's like Toronto compared to New York. We are not as powerful or as known as New York, but we're quite similar in vibe and sense and growing influence. Now, this ancient city was multicultural to the core. It was a religious gathering place as the world did business there and settled there. And so if you read ancient scholars, they tell you that old religions and new religions abounded right across the city. But it was not just known for its pragmatism or its business. It was also extremely famous for its sexual diversity. This city allowed and promoted sexuality in every and all forms. If you read the historians, they will tell you just like our culture, Corinth was about self-promotion, self-help, and self-discovery. That was the gas in the car. That was the lifeblood of the city. Another thinking about what it meant to be a a Corinthian years ago wrote this, the ideal of the city was this. It was the reckless development of individualism. The merchant who made his gain by any and all means, even if it was wrong, was lauded. The man of pleasure could surrender himself to every single lust. The athlete would be giving himself to every bodily exercise and be so unbelievably proud in his physical strength. All of these are archetypes of Corinth. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and had no law but his own desires, that was what Corinth was known for. Now, how I love that Jesus knew that we would need such a letter to help all of us. And by the way, if you're gathering with us this morning or you're watching online and you are a seeker or a skeptic, that is, you either have the name Christian but you're not genuinely a follower, it's cultural, or actually you're not a Christian at all and you come from another faith or no faith, this is an amazing book to walk through with us because you will actually see who God is, what he offers, and how he will transform you if you choose to follow him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, then we together will see the life we are called to walk out and live in this grand city that we all love. So this is how the conversation begins for Paul and actually begins for us. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, Paul begins this conversation by basically saying this, hey, everybody, it's Paul writing you know I'm the guy who was sent out by God to plant churches and, and just as we're getting going, I need to remind you that even though we're doing this in community and I'm even writing by a, with a friend of mine, I just want to tell you, this actually isn't my idea. Don't forget my story. I hated Jesus and well, I, if I had met you a few years ago, I would have hated you because I was actually against Jesus and, and then Jesus showed up into my life and he not only saved me, when he saved me, he commissioned me. So it's not my idea to be a leader in the church, it actually is Jesus's. 
If you know the book of Acts, and we went through it last year, do you remember what Jesus said about a man named Saul who later took on the name Paul within 72 hours of being knocked to his face and realizing his whole life had been in the wrong trajectory? This is how Jesus described his plan for Saul. In Acts 9.15, this man, that Saul who becomes Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to non-Jews and their kings and Jews. And I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. So Paul begins the conversation by saying, hey, it's me. I'm here by God's design and God's will. And by the way, as we get going, I desperately want to encourage you because I love you so much. And he says, I want to say these words to you. Now, in my opinion, this next verse is one of the best verses in the whole Bible. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Some of you are like, wow, you got to get a better verse than that. No, no, it's really good. And I want all of us to watch really closely what already just took place in this seemingly boring verse. Look at that phrase, to those who are sanctified. Now, this is extremely important for our whole conversation this year. You need to see the power of this. To those who have already been made holy in God's sight, and it's written in the past tense. In other words, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're not just set apart for God's service. Actually, right now, because of Jesus' work, you are perfect. So when God the Father in heaven looks at you right now, he looks through Jesus at you. And because of Jesus, who's like the ultimate Brita filter, he's the ultimate one who takes all the imperfections, he declares that you, past tense, are already holy, made perfect. In other words, every Christian on earth is already holy, you're already good with the Father, you're already clean, you're already reconciled, you're already loved, you're already held, you're already owned and held in and through and by Jesus Christ. The old King James writes it like this, to you who are saints. See, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you actually have to do all these things post-death to become a saint. But here's what the Bible teaches. Every single Christian, the weakest, most broken Christian on earth is a saint already because they've been set apart by God and they have God's full approval, worth, affirmation, and love. And that is true because of Jesus. Anyone want to say amen yet? See, that's amazing. We are saints because of the work of Christ. And yet then Paul, as he gives this most profound, shocking statement, by the way, to a multicultural church who only 20 years earlier would have hated each other, Then he says, to you who are saints, to you who are holy, those who are positionally made right with God the Father at this moment, you still have to work out that amazing thing up there down here at work, in marriage, in family, in relationships with money, sex, faith, enemies, and friends. So here's the summary. To you who are holy, get on with your holiness and be holy every day. And let me just say this as a side note. The evidence that things are right up there is an ever-growing rightness down here by the power and work of the Spirit. Now, if you would just read these first two verses, you would think everything is amazing with Paul and amazing with his church. But if you keep reading, you realize it is not. This church is riddled and overcome by sin in every single direction. It is flawed and it is not getting better. But actually, this is Paul's point. God has done such an amazing work already in Jesus for you Now I'm going to write a whole letter to show you how you can actually begin to work out this amazingness down here. So he says, okay, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, and watch this, together with all those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Okay, now don't miss this. I want you to look at the word everywhere. Already in this really nice greeting, Paul is already beginning to deal with wrong thinking. 
There was this growing, unhealthy independence away from Paul as a leader and also from other churches that were in other cities. In other words, this local church basically started saying things like this. We don't need anyone else. We're fine, thank you very much. We don't need to talk to other churches. And actually, by the way, we don't really even need you, Paul, so just get out of our face. But see, that is why, by the way, as Christians in all of our diversity around the world, we need to continue to confess things like the Apostles' Creed. Because when we, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, there is one line that makes some of you very uncomfortable, but it is profoundly needed. We believe in one holy Catholic church. Now, holy Catholic church doesn't mean the Roman Catholic church. It meant the universal church. We are the living body of Jesus made up by people all around the world that are forgiven. We are a people united globally right now by the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we're even united with all those who have already died that are in the presence of Jesus right now. And that is why we confess this because we need to remind ourselves that we cannot be independent from other churches because God has designed us to be interdependent. So let me just declare this again. We need Calvary Baptist Church. We need Hebron Christian Reformed Church. We need People's Church in Toronto. You fill in the blank. That is why we discipline ourselves in this church every week, praying for other Christians who are not even part of our association because we have one Lord, one shared faith, one baptism, and one hope. And when we start thinking we're the big deal, we are starting to violate what Jesus has set up. So we confess there is one holy Catholic church, and we're just fine with it. And Paul says, by the way, don't you ever start thinking your church doesn't need another church. You may disagree, but you're to spend eternity with each other, so get used to them now. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just some hallmark greeting. This summarizes our whole faith. Grace is undeserved mercy and peace is shalom. In other words, we actually have peace between God the Father and Jesus and us. This is what you've experienced if you are a Christian this morning. This is God's ongoing gift over you. And notice, these things are impossible to earn, buy, achieve, or deserve. God gives them to us just because he is love. Now, C4, look at these amazing gifts given to every day, ordinary, broken, sinful, messed up people like us. And look at who gives the gifts. The Father and the Son. Now, before I move on, we're just going to have a little doctrine lesson here because it really matters. I did this early in the summer. The Father... God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ are on equal footing. Now, I want you to remind yourself, or maybe for the first time know this, Paul, who's writing this, is Jewish. Not sort of Jewish, he's Jewish. He's a rabbi extraordinaire. He is a, probably a double PhD in Judaistic theology. He is an Orthodox Jew. And suddenly, he is placing Jesus from Nazareth, who's the son of a carpenter, on the same level as God. There's only one true living God. It's the same God of Adam, Eve, Noah, Moses, Elijah, and Isaiah. Do you see this? See, when you understand this, everything changes. Jesus is put on the same level as the Father. And if that is true, then Jesus has to be God because there is no one who can be at that level unless they are God. You go into chapters today, you read all these books that say, oh, Christians invented the idea that Jesus was God in the second or third or fifth century. Garbage. We've been confessing Jesus is God since the very beginning. That's why later the creeds did articulate things like this. Here's the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not created, of one essence with the Father through whom all things were made. The Father and the Son give us peace and grace. And then Paul does this. 
He says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, when I read this, I go, hold on, you gotta be joking me, Paul. This church is a disaster. How can you be thanking God for these people? This is like a hot mess. Okay, imagine if you were thinking about becoming a pastor and I came to you and said, you know what? I'm so glad you're so interested in becoming a pastor. I have an amazing first church for you to do. Maybe you're like thinking about ministry. So listen, number one, it's in Corinth, epic city. The coffee is amazing. The food culture, multicultural. It's like got the best transit system and you're just gonna love it. The whole world's there. But there's just a few problems with the church. Let me tell you, but I, I know you're gonna love this church. So number one, just so you know, certain relatives are having sex with other relatives and there's incest going on in the church. And I know that's, sort of difficult. And then lots of other men are sleeping with prostitutes and they think God's okay with it. But it's not just adultery, by the way. Actually, these uh, sex trade workers are connected to pagan temples. So when you're having sex with them, actually you're worshiping demons. And there's a lot of uh, men doing that in the church. And that's sort of bad. And then, oh, I should tell you that there's basically verbal gang warfare between different groups. The church hates itself and are basically killing each other with their words. Other Christians are connecting with demons. Others are misusing spiritual gifts, abusing each other, puffing themselves up. Actually, the whole church has a real problem. They're just too self-confident. Oh, and then I forgot to tell you that a lot of uh, uh, people are suing each other in open court as Christians, and then other Christians aren't sure if Jesus actually rose from the dead, so they're denying the resurrection. Other people are yelling over if you can eat food given to idols, and so actually certain connect groups don't like each other anymore. Oh, and then communion is just a disaster because the rich people are showing up and eating all the food, and the poor people show up later, and they have no no food, so it's a classism issue, and actually the church is highly immature. And then there are others asking questions like, well, should I divorce my non-Christian spouse because now I'm a Christian? And then, oh, right, just to tell you, they actually know who you are, and three-quarters of the church doesn't like you, doesn't think you should be a pastor, doesn't think you've got it what it takes, and by the way, they're not even sure if you're there by the will of God. So strife, abuse, discord, factions, lawsuits, sexual morality, and chaos. Uh, Do you want the position or not? And by the way, that's actually what's happening in the local church. You think C4 has trouble? How in the world can Paul be thankful, positive, excited, and even supernaturally expectant in that chaos? See, you ever watch one of those shows, House Hunters International, this old house, I don't know, you pick your poison, right? Here's what people do. They walk into a terrible home, they go, oh my goodness, it smells like cat pee everywhere, right? And the linoleum's from 1962. But then they always do this. They go, but the bones are great in the house. All right? And then, of course, we're all intrigued because we're like, I don't know what to do with that house. And suddenly, by the end, they've produced the most epic $2.5 million home that we all want in our dreams. That is not what's happening here. Paul doesn't walk into the house and go, oh, my goodness, I smell cat pee everywhere, but don't worry, it's okay. He's saying the, the, the cat pee is there, and it's not only the linoleum. Actually, the walls are rotten. There are no good bones. And then he says this, but actually, I don't care. Because actually, my confidence isn't in the people. My confidence is in God and his work, which is stronger and better than anything that's going on in the ground. 
So then he utters these words in verse 5. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't even lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Okay, here's what he's basically saying. The Holy Spirit is actually among all of you. He is grieved, but he's there. And anywhere the Holy Spirit is, he can actually change, transform, and resurrect the worst situations. And Paul is saying, because now I have heard an evidence that you have all the spiritual gifts which are from the Holy Spirit. God has now confirmed you've said yes to Jesus because you wouldn't have spiritual gifts if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have Jesus. But since you have gifts, you have the Spirit, which means you have Jesus. So actually, I have great confidence that he who's begun a good work is going to end it. Now, let me just do a side note here. Lots of you who attend this church grew up in a Pentecostal tradition. And you were taught your whole life that if you don't speak in tongues, you have no absolute surety that you are saved. Because tongues is the evidence that the Spirit is with you. And you were also taught your whole life that everyone must and should speak in tongues. Now let me just say this, and though I say this in unity, I love my Pentecostal friends. They're dead wrong on this. So you're like, I'm out. Okay, it's blessings upon you. Now listen, listen, what does Paul say here? Paul doesn't say, oh, by the way, you all need to speak in tongues. Here's what he says. He says, no, God has confirmed his presence because all the spiritual gifts are present among all the people. No second-class citizenship, no one gift over another, no demand that we all actually have the same gift. Here's what his point is. The church has been fully equipped by the Spirit, and the Spirit is present when all the gifts are functioning in the local church. But gifts, by the way, are secondary because the epicenter of the conversation isn't gifts, it's Jesus. Because we're eagerly, he says, awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Verse 7. And he will keep you firm to the end. By the way, this is for someone this morning. So that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that is Father, who is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now watch this. This just says this. Paul says in the middle of this terrible mess, God the Father is going to keep you. God the Father is going to hold you. God the Father is going to establish you. God the Father is going to, this is his promise, and God does not lie. He is going to make you blameless to the end. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, should actually utter or produce in us emotions of terror and joy. All sorts of us never think about Jesus coming back, but let me tell you what it's going to be like. When Jesus comes back, there will be no hiding, there will be no bargaining, there will be no excuses. Every person who's ever lived will face Jesus and either acknowledge he did exist or will have to reconfess him of who he is. And they will have to say, and every knee will bow when they do this, Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, this is how Paul describes it. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So I want you to let, let this sink in. When the sky split, when Jesus comes back, when all sin is revealed, when the books are open, when all thoughts and motives are revealed, when every action by every person and every government and every corporation and every family member and every enemy, everything in secret is brought to light, every motive of everything is brought to light, when every human being faces God in judgment, here is the profound, unbelievable good news of the scriptures that says... That he who keeps you to the end will make you blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is faithful. He has called you into fellowship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, we will be blameless because of the call of the Father in Jesus. Why would you not want him? 
He's burden lifting. He stands in the gap. He covers our sin. And when the most scary day in human history happens, we will be standing not in our own confidence, but in Jesus's work. And we will be able to say, I am not blameless, but because of that guy over there, I am. And I cannot wait to meet my real father at home. See, by the way, the direct promise of eternal security. When Jesus was really the perfecter and author of your faith, you are secure. God calls you. That is where Paul's confidence is in, in God's calling, not the people. And God's call is wider and stronger and higher and deeper than any problem in any church. By the way, this is how Paul articulated the calling idea in Romans. Romans 8.29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers. The Father called you, by the way, if you read this in the original language, anytime you read one of those calling words, election, predestination, for knowing, they are all active. God is doing the thing. It's not us, and he catches up with us. It is God who starts. It is God who maintains. It is God who holds. It is God who superintends. See, the very word and the idea of us being called comes right out of the Old Testament between Israel and the people of God in Amos 3.2. To you, he says to Israel, only have I known, chosen, sympathized with, loved, out of all the families of the earth. So to you who are chosen, to you who are already made holy, to you who are called, to, to you who have been given grace and peace, to those that have the Holy Spirit, to those in community that have every spiritual gift needed, to those that will be held, to those that will be blameless, to those that know that their confidence is when Jesus comes back, judgment will not actually fall on them because they've embraced the great judgment taker, then Paul says, we need to talk. I can't actually ignore the issues that we're facing in the family because what's happening up there is not reflecting down here. So here's number one. We need to talk about disunity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there'd be no divisions uh, among you, but that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there's quarrels among you. And what I mean is this, I'm hearing that one of you says, well, I follow Paul, and, and the other says, I follow Apollos, and another says, I follow Cephas, and another says, I'm following Christ. Now, Chloe, by the way, if you don't know who she was, was a very prominent businesswoman who had a lot of money who used to work between Ephesus and Corinth. Think about her owning like Holt Renfrew or Burberry. Sort of got the idea? Very well-dressed woman. And she's a follower of Jesus, and she shows up to Paul and says, I got to tell you what's going on. I love that we live in a culture of Instagram, you know what I'm talking about, right? And how we, I love these words, we curate our photos, whatever that means. And we spend two and a half hours like making sure the food looks perfect or the house looks perfect or, or our children look perfect. But we all know that two minutes before and after, it's a complete disaster, maybe not even from heaven. Paul, this is what we need to understand. Chloe shows up and says, do not follow and believe the Instagram account of that church. It looks perfect. It is a disaster. It is terrible. And they are lying through their teeth. This is not true. Let me actually tell you what's really going on. And so she gives an earful to Paul, and he says, you know, if there's one world that's quarreling. Now, don't misunderstand this. Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus all have the same message. This isn't about doctrine. This isn't even about secondary issues. This is about personal allegiance. I like his style. I like his views. And notice, if you haven't caught it yet, three out of the four groups are not with Paul. In other words, they don't like Paul. They're attacking his leadership. And the real kicker, the real one that we miss a lot of the times is the last group. Well, we're with Jesus. 
Now, I want you to watch this. We don't need pastors or elders or leaders. Jesus is enough for us. It's just me and Jesus. Now, that's taking God's name in vain. And I've actually done this sin. When I was younger and I was on staff here as a youth pastor, I used to work for another senior pastor. And your character always grows as a young leader when you have to work for someone else. Anyone want to say amen to that? So the staff are like, oh, yes, amen, let me tell you. Yeah, thanks. Okay, no, but watch this. One day I was being a real jerk. I'd use another word from the platform, but I won't. And my pastor, Dave, looked at me and he said, not Pastor Dave, who's here now, Dave Collins. He said, you know what, John, don't forget I'm your boss. And I said back to him, you're not my boss, Jesus is. So stupid, so arrogant, such a donkey. There's the word. (laughs) He had every right to say that. Here's what I did. I used Jesus' name in vain to be arrogant. I don't need to follow you. I just need Jesus, and I know better than you anyway. Paul gets so upset at this point, he says this. Is Christ divided? Uh, Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let me work this out. I like Paul. I like Peter. I like Apollos. I like Augustine. I like Calvin. I like Luther. I like Wesley. I love Charles Stanley. I follow Charles Swindoll. I like Brian Houston. I like John MacArthur. I like Louis Giglio. I like Bill Johnson. I like Tim Keller. Okay, keep going. Now, all these men and other leaders are fine, and do we have agreements and disagreements? Yes, quite, quite significant, but here's what's going. I like their style. I like their preaching. I like their educational background. I like how they wear these type of jeans. I, I like their hairdo. I like that they wear a suit. I like they do stop. Paul says, were any of these people crucified before the Father for your sins? Then shh. He says, I actually am so upset He says, I think God didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one could say you were actually baptized into my name. Yes, I suppose I also baptized those from the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't even send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Baptism takes a back seat to the ministry of preaching and conversion. Paul is making it plain here, by the way. Though baptism is fundamentally important, it does not guarantee or give salvation. Baptism always comes after salvation. If you read in the book of Acts, the very first very Christian sermon, every preached by Peter, and the people are cut to the heart. They said, what should we do? Peter said, you should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And if you keep reading to the end, it says this, and those who believed, past tense, then were baptized. Baptism is the evidence that you've put the wedding ring on. Baptism is the, inward, the outward symbol of the inward work. And here's the point, though, for Paul. He's not denying baptism. And let me just say this. If you've not been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to get baptism, baptized. It's a point of joy in celebration and also obedience. But Paul's point is this, you've turned our symbol of unity. Baptism, by the way, is the symbol of church unity. We have one common Lord, one baptism, one shared faith, one common future, all of that's in there. And he says, you're actually turning baptism into the greatest weapon for disunity. Are you all crazy? You can't give allegiance to some leader. We're all in Christ. Build yourself up in a unity that God has given us which none of us deserve, but he started in us. And I'm not saying this, by the way. Jesus actually commanded this. Now, as we get going into this year, and we know that God himself has invited us into a growing inward joyful obedience, 
What have we learned so far in these few verses about what it means to actually be a faithful follower of Christ in the great city that we love? Well, here's the first thing. Don't be ashamed to call Jesus who he actually is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to unpack this because this matters. When people called Jesus Lord, number one, they were confessing him as God in flesh, not just prophet. Number two, Jesus is above every government and he's above all people. When a Christian 2,000 years ago in Corinth declared Jesus was Lord, the only person in that culture who was called Lord was Caesar. And when you declared that some Jewish guy who was 33, the son of a carpenter, was more Lord than Caesar, it was treasonous. In other words, here's what we need to say. Jesus is Lord. He's above all people. He's above every one of us, and he also is king, which means we have to obey Jesus beyond our preferences. We have to obey obey Jesus beyond family, friends, government, or teacher if they tell us to disobey him. He is Lord, but he's not just Lord. He's Messiah, Christ, and I love what one pastor summarized it this way. Just follow the language. It's a a little thick, but it's important. He said, in a a post-Holocaust, pluralistic, postmodern world, Is there any place for a Christian to say to a non-Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Jew, fill in the blank, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, and that God wills and calls you into fellowship and into the sanctification that's found in Christ. That kind of risk of polarization, of political incorrectness that attends such a profession of faith might actually guarantee that the gospel has not lost its potency at all. To smell like death to some and life to others. To be the wisdom for some and folly to others. To be received as the power of God to some while disdaining, while disdained as the scandal of the most moronic proportions to others. Here's what I'm needed to say. In Toronto, with every single faith on earth here and everyone else, do not be ashamed to call Jesus who he is. He is Lord. He is Jesus' Savior and he is Christ. And whether it offends people or not, that is who he is and we must not be ashamed of the gospel. To all people, there is only one way. The Muslims are wrong. He's not just prophet. He's Lord. To the Jews, he is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. They're still praying for the wailing wall. He's already come. We need to point him to Jesus. To every atheist, the Lord has broken in and evidenced his existence by the resurrection of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, and he's the only way home to the Father. That's the truth. So we got to be okay with this, even if in our culture we are told this is wrong. Now, don't be a jerk when you say it, but follow it. Here's the second thing we all need to embrace. Every single one of us, within the sound of my voice, has to root our personal identity in what Paul starts with. How you see yourself how you actually understand your value and worth as a human being has to be rooted in something beyond you. The love of God, that is our new position before God, is our starting point. Remember, why does Paul start with such a totally screwed up church this way? Paul's confidence was not in the people and not in himself, but in God's work through Jesus. That is why, by the way, I don't know if you caught it, Jesus is mentioned 11 times in this passage. God's work in the past, present, and future is sure, certain, God-given, immovable, hope-giving, and life-changing. So day in and day out, as you live your life in Toronto, you actually have to say that this is true over yourself no matter what Toronto says about you. So when you hear a voice in your head that says, God doesn't like you anymore, you say, that is not true. I'm called by God the Father. That is an unpure voice. When someone says to you, you're ugly, no, no, you say, no, actually, Elected before the beginning of time. I've got a good ticket. 
When people, see, you understand the power of this. When the devil or your own heart or our city says you must conform, you must mold, you must be this, we go, no, actually my rooted identity is that I am blameless, called by the Father, loved by Jesus Christ, and his word and his truth over us has to have more power than any voice, historic, family, mom, dad, teacher, educate, has to have more power. Why? Because you can't be a pilgrim. And you can't actually pioneer if your insides aren't secure with God. You'll always give in to the temptations of our great city. So Paul says, number one, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Number two, root your identity in this. And some of you this morning have continually given in to false voices that tell you things about yourself, either puffed you up or ripped you down. And this is where you need to go. This is the truth of who you are. And why do I know this? Because this is what lasts forever, not what that person said or what you said about yourself. Now, here's the third thing. Here's the kicker. Our common unity also has to be rooted in God's work. We actually also need to believe that our unity and diversity has to be found here. And don't think, not one of us should think that we are better than the church in Corinth. I just want to remind you of every single landmine that exists in our church this morning for disunity. Number one, there's 2,700 of us. So, you know, we all have the same opinion, right? So we're going to be fine. And then let me just say this. We're made up of men and women. Should I stop there? Because we all think exactly the same. Oh, right. And then there's the generations between us, right? We still have builders among us, and we've got baby boomers, and we've got Gen X and millennial, and now Zed is among us. We've got blue collar and white collar, and then we have different educational levels, and then God has finally answered our prayers in this church, and God is doing a new thing, and the multiculturalism in this church that we're going to see eternally in heaven is happening here, and yet... When all sorts of people from different backgrounds, we've got Africans here now, but actually from all different parts of Africa, and you all think differently from even the Africans that are sitting beside you, let alone everyone else, and then there's Asians, and that's through, and then Latino, and then Native, and then Indian, and then Western, then non-Western, white, and black, and you know that, by the way, there's just no tension at all between race. And then different personalities, because we all think the same. Oh, and then there's 21 different spiritual gifts, so we're going in 21 different directions, because we think that thing that is burning in our heart is the most important thing to God. And then there's different preferences. And if that's not enough, then we have serious doctrinal differences between us and other churches that we love. I'm a Calvinist and Arminian. Women can be elders. No, they can't. Uh, Charismatic gifting. Yes, no, maybe so. Baptism by sprinkling. Baptism by immersion. I like the Gaithers. I like Bethel. I like, you know, I like singing the Psalms in Greek, whatever. Uh, On and on it goes. Philosophy of ministry. Small church, large church, mega church, house church, no church. Look, the only way that we stay together is that first of all, we give grace to each other as Jesus has given us. Second, we remember that we have a common Lord and Jesus died for that person you struggle with, is using them, has gifted them spiritually. And by the way, our unity is always broken when we take our eyes off Jesus and we look at each other first. We rally around the cross of Christ. So if we're going to pioneer together and pilgrim together, then our common starting point has to actually not be forgotten or broken. And here's what I want to say together. It doesn't matter your skin color, your background, how old you are, what gender. Listen, you're a saint and we're saints together. That's truth. We are called to be holy. In other words, we, just because we're saints doesn't mean we can't give feedback to each other. We are called to be holy. We're bound to each other by Jesus. In other words, we're with each other for eternity. Get used to it. 
We together have the same Holy Spirit. We have spiritual gifts together. We're going to be kept firm to the end together. We're going to be blameless together. We have experienced the faithfulness of God together. We've all been mutually called together. We together have fellowship with Jesus and we've been baptized in Jesus. Here's the point. When you want to start going off on someone in the church, whether by personality or background, just remember before you do it in your head at three o'clock in the morning or out loud, just say out loud to yourself, that person is elected by God the Father, loved by Jesus Christ and shares the same baptism with me and then see how far you get by criticizing them. Our unity, if we're going to stay together as a church and move forward in all of our diversity, and it's only going to get more difficult, we have to remember our unity isn't actually found here. Our unity is found in here and up there. That has to be the grounding so we keep going together well. So number one, we can't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. We have to declare who he is in our great multicultural city, kindly but directly. Number two, we have to continually root the truth of who we are in what God says over us. And it has to have greater power than anything that psychologists say could have grip on us. Third of all, we have to continue to remind ourselves that our unity in this church isn't because we like C4 or we're hanging out with... No, no, our unity is deeper than that. It's rooted in God the Father's call. And here's the last thing the text tells us. Leaders need to lead. If you read all of First and Second Corinthians, Paul is accused of not being a good leader because <laughs> he didn't actually have lots of people that followed him. And actually, we're going to find out as we keep reading First Corinthians that Paul actually was not a great speaker. He didn't do public speaking well. He wasn't polished and his style wasn't amazing. Apollos, by the way, was the really awesome speaker. He was actually accused of being a flatterer by this church, saying one thing and doing another. He was accused of being incompetent and insincere in his preaching. They even commented that he didn't dress very well. So nothing's changed. And he didn't demonstrate enough charismatic power gifting. He didn't have much of the ooh stuff. So they weren't sure if he was a really good apostle. And here's how Paul starts his letter. He says, hey, everyone, it's Paul. I just want to remind you that I've been placed here by Jesus. So we're all together, yep, and we all rally around Jesus, but leadership doesn't get removed in our unity. Now, I want to say this because lots of us have been hurt by bad leaders. Leaders have to grow in humility, yes. Leaders have to grow in love. Leaders have to be open to feedback, 100%. But never forget, as we pioneer together and we pilgrim together, God has always given leaders to lead. Someone has to say yes and no. Someone has to say, we're going this way and not that way. There was always a Moses. There was always an Aaron. There was always a Paul. So as we move forward together, as we begin this journey together, as we starting next week, start working this out in our connect groups, just remember, first and foremost, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Number two, ask yourself this week, in the midst of the six million people who make up Toronto and all of its diversity, do I root my identity in anything but the call of Jesus and the call of the Father? Number three, ask yourself, are you breaking unity in our church in any way if you are repent? And then start saying to yourself, how do I work this out? How do I see that person, that group that actually is this with me? How do I do that? And start asking the Holy Spirit. And lastly, continue to pray and let leaders lead so we can move forward together. So could we all just put our hands out together as we prepare to respond? And let's just say a few things, Lord. Number one, Lord, we are so unbelievably thankful that you gave us the book of 1 Corinthians. That you knew that there would be, well, 80% of Christians right now on earth live in cities. Because 80% of humanity does. 
And you knew we would need to learn how to live in big, beautiful, vibrant cities well. So here's our prayer. Number one, help us to grow inwardly in obedience. Help us to move where you're going and form this church, not as a holy huddle, but form us as a holy people who truly, truly, truly know how to do this well in the city we love. Come, Lord Jesus. Keep working this out among us, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.